Live opinions, descriptions, and accounts expressed on the Best of Times Radio Hour are those of the hosts and the guests of this show, and not necessarily those of Town Square Media or this station. Consult with your attorney, accountant, or other professional for final advice in making your decision. The Best of Times, live from 710 Keel Studios in Shreveport, Louisiana, celebrating age and maturity. Helping you make the best years of your life the best they can be. The best of times. Your host, Gary Coligas. Good morning, Arthur listeners. I'm Gary Coligas, the publisher of The Best of Times, the only news magazine for mature adults in northwest Louisiana. Thank you for tuning in to our show today and also thanking those who might be listening via the Internet at www.710keel.com. Also thanking those who might be listening via the Radio Pup application on their Apple and Android devices. In just a few minutes, we're going to learn about a newly released historical suspense novel, The Lost Order by internationally known author and historian Steve Barry. So stay tuned to the show for some very interesting information about his new book, The Lost Order. It is Saturday, April the 8th, and we're broadcasting our radio show today from the studios of News Radio 710 Keel, a Town Square media station here in Shreveport, Louisiana. However, today's show has been pre recorded, so we will be unable to accept calling questions and comments from our loyal radio listeners. Be sure to pick up the April issue of The Best of Times at one of our 522 distribution locations. We do appreciate hearing from you about our magazine and our radio show. Please do contact us and call us and log on to our website at www.thebestoftimesnews.com. If you're unable to find a copy of our publication at one of our 522 distribution locations, you can, of course, view past and current issues as well as the podcast of previously broadcast radio shows. Again, you can also send us comments from our website regarding our magazine and our radio shows. The 2017 Silver Pages Senior Resource Directory is available at some of our distribution locations. This new and improved and highly updated resource publication is our most popular document with our readers and is kept for many months and years by them. It is also viewable and downloadable from our website at www.thebestoftimesnews.com. Remember to visit our website for listening announcements made during today's radio show, as well as information about upcoming events, activities, and news that you can use. We'll be right back with more information, but now a word from our sponsors and advertisers who make this radio show possible. You're listening to the Best of Times Radio Hour here on News Radio 710 Keel, proudly presented by A-Bears, Tenant Country of Shreveport, your Dodge, Chrysler, Ram, and Jeep dealer. Gary's got more of the best of times coming for you on 710 Keel. Now, back to the best of times with your host, Gary Coligas. Welcome back to our show, the best of times radio hour, probably presented by A-Bears, turning country of Shreveport, your Dodge, Chrysler Ram, and Jeep dealer. Joining me on my show today is a very infamous guest who is a internationally known author, lecturer, and historian, the infamous Mr. Steve Barry. 
It's great to be here. Good to hear you again, Gary. Well, it's been a while. um, And today we're going to be discussing with Steve his new novel that just got released on April the 4th. It's The Lost Order. And so we're going to talk about that. Before, I've got to to get even some kudos here. Of course, thank you for taking time from your extremely busy schedule uh, to appear on my show again. This is your eighth time, by the way. Did you know that? I, I knew it had been quite a few, but I didn't realize it was eight. Eight different novels of Steve Barry has been presented on my Best of Times radio show. And, and, and by the way, uh, every every time you appear on my show and talk about the book, it's a pretty big seller in the area. And I know based upon the clicks I get on my website and people calling and, and talking to me in the neighborhood as well as throughout the area. So uh, you're getting a little bit of... Uh, You've got notoriety throughout the world in big cities, but even little cities like Shreveport and Bossier City, Louisiana. Well, we, we need readers everywhere. Everywhere right, we, we do. Um, and I will tell you that your shows on my – we podcast some of our shows, Steve uh, – is amongst the top downloaded previously broadcast radio shows of the best of times. And I, I can't tell you if they're Nova Scotia, Poland, Germany, Japan, but people have been downloading it in the thousands about all the eight times that you've been on, have been on my radio show. I think they want to get a little scoop about the book. So that they probably Google it, find it, then they listen to the show and know a little bit more about the, uh, about your novels. That's pretty cool to hear. Isn't that, isn't that cool? Yeah. But many thousands have listened to the eight the different eight shows. I still keep them on my website, even though I have like 900 on there. We occasionally have to move a few on. So, again, I will tell my listeners... Um, I highly recommend this novel. Uh, I have read it. Uh, it was, like, awesome. Uh, it took me two nights, uh, Steve. Normally it takes me one, but sometimes my wife interrupts me, so I can't do complete the whole book in one one evening. But it is ref, definitely a, uh, a pickup at your local bookstore or via www.steveberry.org, or you can, of course, go to our website and order it uh, indirectly through Amazon.com. Uh, so tell us a little bit about why you chose to write about the Knights of the Golden Circle. Well, I mean, they were the largest, most dangerous, subversive organization in the history of this country. That has to get your attention right off the bat, and it did mine. It did mine? They were crea- yeah, they were created right before the Civil War. They uh, existed during the Civil War, and some say even after the Civil War. They were... Uh, 40,000 strong at one point. They became the South's counterintelligence agency. They uh, will never really know the full extent of all that they did because the records regarding them were disappeared from Richmond right before the war ended and have never been found to this day. But the cool thing about them, the thing that really drew me to them, was what they did with all their wealth. They, they stole a lot of gold and a lot of silver. They even robbed a couple of U.S. mints. They took that gold and silver and they buried it all across the south in the woods. And they left clues in the woods of how to find their caches that they hid. And treasure hunters have been trying to decipher those clues and look for those caches for 170 years and have uh, have a little bit of success. A few of the smaller uh, finds have been located, but the vast majority of the gold and silver still remains out there hidden. So I decided to send Cotton Malone after it. 
and that and that started the tale here. But going back, I've had some skeptics who have um, said, Gary, there was no such thing as the Knights of the Golden Circle. I've never heard about it. I'm a born and raised Southerner here that grew up and grew up with, you know, Confederate ancestors. They never heard about this particular group. But it is, and I, I kept showing them various references, it is an existed organization mm-hmm. back in 18, 1850, I think you said it was begun? It, it started in 1852, and we know for a fact that it existed. There's no question it existed. They had a grand plan to, uh, to take over Mexico, swing around into the Caribbean, and create a huge golden circle of industry and 11 new states that would join the union and it would be headquartered in Havana and they would uh, tip the balance of constitutional power by adding new states to the to the to the congress it was a grand plan the civil war got in the way though and kind of ended those plans and so they became an intelligence operation now what happened to them after the war is a matter of great Debate. Some say they disappeared. Some say they went underground and changed. Some say they hung around to the early part of the 20th century, and some say there are remnants of them still around today. Wow. Yeah, I thought that was very fascinating. And we want to want to want to mention one thing about Steve Barry's book, which I'm, I've always been a, a love of his writing skills in in the in the narrative of his book, but also at the end, Steve, you do editor's notes, which helps give the reader like me some background and and tells you what facts and fictions. Right? Explain to our listeners about that. Well, always in the back of my novels, there's a writer's note, and I spend a lot of time on that note. It takes me about a week to write it, because I go through the novel page by page, line by line, and I find all of the tidbits, everything, and I tell you what's true and what's false, because I don't want the reader to leave the book thinking something's real when it's not. Now, in my novels, about 90% of what I use in the book is actually true, so... I'm more telling you what's false, and that 10% that I trip it up. But that writer's note is there so that when you leave the novel, you'll have a complete understanding. But as I tell readers all the time, please do not read it first. It will it will ruin the entire novel. But it's there when you're done. <laughs> and that's a good warning. Don't read this until you finish the complete book. And it, probably if you read it more than once. Uh, I've, I've had to read most of your your novels more than once, and because I always get something new out of it when I read when I read your editor's notes, I'll go back and read it again. And um, you know, I thought that was uh, that's fascinating as well. Uh, so, who were some of these? famous knights of the past that were part of the uh, Knights of the Golden Circle. Do we know who they? some of them were? The membership rosters did not survive, unfortunately. So we don't know anything for sure, but there are some speculation. Um, some believe John Wilkes Booth was a member of the Knights of the Golden Circle and that the entire plot to kill Lincoln was a, a Golden wow. Circle plot. No one knows that for sure. There's no way to, to, to know that. Uh, we have, as I said, there's no documentation or anything that survives. Well, another one that's interesting is Jesse James. Uh, mm. Jesse, Jesse James fought in the Civil War, and then he went back afterwards and uh, basically wreaked havoc on Reconstructionists in Missouri and Arkansas, kind of just wreaked total havoc on them. He committed the first daylight bank robbery in American history. 
The uh, first no one? Bank, no bank robberies was ever done in daylight, huh? No day, no armed bank robbery ever occurred prior to Jesse James. And he committed the very first one. In a, it was a Reconstructionist bank, so he, he didn't. He felt like he was kind of still fighting the enemy. He stole a lot of money during his life, but lived very simply. And many believe he was a knight of the Golden Circle, and he turned that wealth over to the knight. And that wealth ended up being buried and hidden in the woods of Missouri and Arkansas. Wow, what what are some stories there? And wh- what about, has any research been done on his family members after that? I mean, uh, I don't recall. No, not, that I, not that I'm aware of. There's, the, there's a couple of books out there that speculate strongly that he was a knight. We'll, again, we'll never know for sure. We only know that for a, for a guy who stole a lot of money, he didn't live all that, you know, all that high. So what did he do with all that? Yes, that gives you speculation that he was stashing the cash for some other reason, or he had a he had an, an overall other all different purpose. Wow, that that seems like so. Uh, as you mentioned, at the time of the Civil War, there's estimated they had over thirty thousand members. That's a lot of lot of membership in an organization like that, and a That's secret, true, in a secretive yeah. organization, correct? Yes, your membership was uh, was was relatively secret, even though they 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 mainly forced a lot of people to become members. They were not the the nicest, kindest organization in the world. They were uh, today we would call them a terrorist organization. Oh, uh, that is what they would be later today. But they uh, they were everywhere. They infiltrated the north. They infiltrated all over. A lot of people don't realize that the Civil War was not fought on the eastern seaboard exclusively. The Civil War was fought all across the country in lots of places. And the Knights of the Golden Circle helped the South kind of keep the North off balance. They would go in and take over the newspapers and so that they could control the newspapers in town. They would get members in local government. Uh, one of the things they loved to do was get control of all the horses. They didn't want the horses going to the Union Army, so they oh. would get control of the horses. Uh, they were they were very smart. There's one thing in the novel that I've mentioned in the novel. This is something very interesting. They uh, they came up with an ingenious way to destroy ships. They uh, they took big lumps of coal, hollowed them out, filled them with gunpowder, and then resealed them to look like coal. So. Then that coal was loaded onto Union ships, and when those chunks were thrown into the boilers, guess what happened? They exploded. Yes, Uh, that's a very clever grenade that they created. Innovation deluxe, right? There were a lot of innovators on both sides, but the Confederacy had some interesting innovators. And one other item you touched on it, but I think our listeners may find this. He he blends a lot of this information in in this novel, which was fascinating to me. Is that the Knights' motto was to maintain the Constitution, United States Constitution, as it is, and restore the Union as it was. So explain what that meant. Well, what most Americans don't realize is that the Constitution of the United States sanctioned slavery. It actually allowed slavery to continue. The Three-Fifths Compromise, which set up representation in Congress, recognizes slavery because it counted a slave as three-fifths of a human being. The Fugitive Slave Act was allowed to be enforced and was encouraged to be enforced between states as part of the Constitution. 
the Constitution was quite clear about that. The only thing it said was is that it prohibited the importation of new slaves after 1808. But that didn't mean slavery ended. It mean it just meant you couldn't bring in new ones, which, by the way, that entire prohibition was ignored most of the times. And slaves oh. continued... Oh, yes, yeah, slaves continued to be imported into this country for a long time after 1808. So what they were saying was is we want the Constitution as it was, which means slavery is allowed, and we want the Union like it was. That means put back together. They didn't, you know, they didn't want it broken off into two countries. They, they, they didn't have a problem with being one country. They had a problem with being one country contrary to what the Constitution said as they interpreted it. So that was their motto. They wanted the, the country put back like it was and the Constitution read like it is. And and uh, I've got to ask them, what what came up with the 1808? Was that just a number, a year pulled out of the air? Was there a rationale? No, it was a, comp- it was a compromise date. Uh, when they, the Constitution, it was 20 years after the, you know, the, the Constitution was 1787. Okay. And some, some people wanted to ban, you know, importation right then. Some people wanted it to go on forever. They just came up with a compromise. And they said, 20 years from now, you can't bring any new slaves in. I mean, it, you know, you, you would have to, whatever slaves you have here, you can, you can, you know, keep them going as they are, but you can't bring in any new ones. But like I said, that prohibition got ignored a lot. And slaves were smuggled into this country well into the 19th century. Uh, please tell our listeners, you do have some background on constitutional law. Is that correct? Well, I mean, I was a lawyer for 30 years, and I practiced it. And constitutional law was always fascinating to me. So I read it for, you know, all, all my legal career. It's, it's an area of the law that's interesting, and I've done several books on it. You have. I did, the, I did the Jefferson Key, the Lincoln Myth, the Patriot Threat, uh, all dealt with the constitutional questions some very interesting quirks in the Constitution. The 14th Colony likewise did right. that. And and now this book, uh, The Lost Order, uh, has it as well. So uh, I, I've explored some very interesting uh, aspects of the Constitution. And it was it, it's a great blend in all the other books. We'll, we'll touch base on some of those books. But we'll be right back with more information. But now a word from our sponsors and advertisers who make this radio show possible. You're listening to the Best of Times Radio Hour here on News Radio 710 Keel, probably presented by A Bears, Tenant Country of Shreveport, your Dodge, Chrysler Ram, and Jeep Dealer. Gary's got more of the Best of Times coming for you on 710 Keel. Now, back to the Best of Times with your host, Gary Kaligas. Welcome back to our show, the Best of Times Radio Hour, proudly presented by A Bears, Tenant Country of Shreveport. Dodge, Chrysler Ram, and Jeep Dealer. I'm Gary Kaligas. I do thank you for listening to our show today. Joining me on my show is a very special guest. It's internationally known author, lecturer, and historian Steve Berry, and he's discussing his new novel, The Lost Order, Order, which has just been released to the world on April the 4th. Wow. So thank you, Steve, for joining us today here on the Best of Times Radio Hour. Good to be here, Gary. Well, again, I will tell my listeners, everybody always asks me, Gary, have you read that book when you have that author on the show? I have definitely read this book. And, Steve, I think almost every one of your books I've read. Uh, I've got I've got them in my book collection at home. My wife says, "Why don't you give those away to other people?" No, I'm going to keep these books in, in my library, and I occasionally reread them. That's very nice. Thank you. Do, do you like me rereading them? 
I like people rereading them. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Uh, more the merit. But but Steve, I'll tell you one thing. I've, I've I have loaned them out like a library. Some people for some reason want to just taste it and then they'll end up buying it. And so, uh, but I love especially if they read like the Amber Room, which was your first novel, correct? Yes, that was the first printed novel. Yeah, and uh, it, it's another fascinating. What we, we may go into a little bit later after we finish talking about the Lost Star. But I'll tell you, I I give that generally to people uh, uh, interested in, in World War II history and, and and rumors and facts and so forth. And then they, they they'll come quiz me, so I've got to go quickly uh, get the book back and skim it and read it to to be able to um, converse with them because they're quoting me different uh, pages and chapters in your book. I have a problem with that too. I have to go back and look. <laughs> many years. Hey, it's a senior moment sometime. I, I don't know. I can't remember how old you were, but I'm 67. I'm. I'm. Some days I feel it. So, in the story, in in, in your story, in the Lost Order, it involves a treasure, a huge treasure hunt that spans many, many states, and it's, it's trying to find the hidden stash of gold of the knights, and hopefully. Uh, to be found, and that goal is on the list of modern day treasure hunter expedition today. So, tell us ab- about blending this huge treasure hunt in your in your story. Well, in the chapter one of the novel, Cotton is is engaged in that treasure hunt that you're talking about, and he finds a small cache of gold. That treasure hunt was based on an actual treasure hunt that occurred in the Arkansas woods back in the 1980s. So. Uh, the treasure that's in this novel is not something that I've made up. It's actually a real, uh, you know, hoard that's out there somewhere, and it, it's been out there for a long, long time. And the clues to find it are difficult. They're tough. They're tough to interpret. They were not made to be easily interpreted. And there are people who have actually deciphered some of them. I read about those, and I incorporated those into Cotton's uh, the Cotton Hunt. So. The reader's going to get an appreciation for it, for what what's really out there and what they're really trying to do to find this treasure. The the large cache, the huge cache, the one that, that I call the vault in the novel. Right. No one is ever located, and no one even knows you know where it might be. Uh, I of course put it in another location and in, in one that is an entirely plausible based on all the information that I read. So do you, do you feel that as this novel is being researched that the treasure hunters will increase exponentially? <laughs> I don't know if they, if they will, because uh, I don't. As I said, mine's a work of fiction. They're going to have to go find some of these nonfiction books that have dealt with these questions and, and have looked at it and, and then go out there on the ground and, and give it a hard look. I will say that it, you know, from what I read about it, it's tough. It's very tricky. The Knights made it uh, a challenge to find things. And do we do we know there were that brilliant minds of uh, of, of treasure hunter and, and clue finders? I mean, they were that brilliant. Apparently, they were. They uh, they you know because as I said, there are men who have there are, there are some treasure hunters who have actually deciphered the clues and have found uh, glass jars full of you know gold coins that were located at the end of the hunt. So we know they're out there. We also know that these particular uh, caches across the country were guarded by men called sentinels. And their job was to look after it. And it went on for generations in families to be a sentinel. And all of this is incorporated in the novel right. as well. And so all of that's there, and it, it did actually exist. Now, the question is, are they all gone now? Is everyone dead? 
has it all died away and will we never know the answer? Well, who knows? All we know is is that the, the treasure is actually real, but finding it may prove very difficult. Well, I'm, you know, I'm speculating, but I think it will generate some interest and maybe some ancestors of Sentinels who may have had a glimpse of their great-great-great-grandfather being one of them or, or she was one of them. Uh, were there any women Sentinels, do we know? Is that, no, is that conjectures? They're no. all men? No. Always men. Always men. The, the Knights were a male organization. Oh, okay. Everything. I've got to ask you that. Yeah, it was a strictly male organization only. So um, what I'm going leading for, there may be, I, I still feel that this will touch some some nerve in some of these individuals that might have some time and loving research, that you're going to be, imp, you're going to be starting uh, an, an, an aspect that I think will begin a little more treasure hunters. And, you know, north of me is Arkansas, so I have a feeling it's going to be happening in, in near our neck of the woods there. And... Uh, and, you know, we had rumors of, um, you know, Shreveport was the last uh, of the uh, uh, Confederate, I don't know all the, all the history behind it, of the last location that surrendered to the to the to the, the north at the end of the civil war so uh and there was speculation that uh, jefferson davis was going to be moved here but i think he was apprehended before he came to shreveport so there's a lot of interest in this particular area about that as well uh continuing one of the this is uh one of the few works of fiction that you focus on in your novel the smithsonian in washington dc so why did you choose the smithsonian as a hub of this particular novel well well i mean who's not fascinated by the smithsonian yes really i've been many play. times there i actually serve on the smithsonian library's advisory board wow congratulations we have 22 libraries in the Smithsonian system, which a lot of people don't know even exist. But every museum and research facility, when you go into the American History Museum or the Natural History Museum or Air and Space, right. there's, a muse- there's a library in every one of those facilities. Now, it's not out where you can see it, but it is there in the building. And it is literally the heart of that building. It's where all of the information relative to that museum is stored all of the data everything is there it's a quite a remarkable place and our 22 libraries combined form one of the largest repositories of knowledge in the world and they're all free available to anyone uh, everything in smithsonian is always free and i serve on the advisory board that helps keep those doors open and running keep everything going uh, with those libraries. And so since since I've been on that, I've been wanting to put cotton into the Smithsonian's world. And this book allowed me the perfect opportunity. You're going to get to know Air and Space, uh, the Natural History Museum, the American History Museum, and the Smithsonian Castle very well in this novel. You're going to see some of the nooks and crannies and all the secret places, and every single one of them is real. And uh, you you talk in this book about the 1865 fire, right? Yes, that is a an interesting event. The castle was completed in 1855. In 1865, it burned, and that fire was quite significant. Not only for what it did in destroying the castle, which was ultimately rebuilt, but it altered the Smithsonian forever. Things changed within the Smithsonian. It was a it was a a, a a pivotal event in its history, and it came right towards the end of the Civil War. And so I wanted to incorporate that into the novel 
and make it part of it. So the reader's gonna gonna learn all about what happened. And I don't know if we're giving away anything, but it, it was a neutral ground in the Civil War. Is, is well, it tried to. I mean, uh, Joseph Henry, <laughs> who, who was the secretary of the of the Smithsonian, tried very hard from taking sides. He basically served as Lincoln's science advisor during the war and helped evaluate a lot of innovation that they tried. But he also did not do anything to offend the South. Uh, he was very careful. He, he actually refused a uh, an abolitionist from speaking at the Smithsonian. He, he did not want to get in the middle of that debate. He tried to stay as neutral as he could. And at one point, he was almost accused of being a Southern sympathizer. But he was so close with Lincoln, Lincoln would not hear anything of it. Uh, but the fire happens right towards the end of the Civil War and then alters everything within the Smithsonian. And uh, explain to our listeners what it meant, what you mean by altering. That they, they well, lost a lot of books, they lost a no, lot of well, resources. Well, one of the biggest things was on the second floor of the castle, there was a huge auditorium up there. And that auditorium was designed to present presentations, to, uh, to, to, to present papers, to have people speak from. Well, Joseph Henry didn't like that. He didn't like the fact that Smithsonian was doing that because his job was per James Smithson's will, which left the money to create the Smithsonian. He was to increase, it was for the increase and diffusion of knowledge. And he didn't see that as, as accomplishing that. He thought they should be more involved in scientific ventures. So after the fire, the auditorium was removed. It was completely got gone, and he changed the focus of the Smithsonian. He also gave away the library. There was a library in the castle, and he got rid of it. He gave all the books to the Library of Congress. Now, ultimately, that became a very bad idea, and eventually the Smithsonian libraries were recreated. But there was a lot of changing of the focus of the Smithsonian, and it became more and more what we know today as the Smithsonian. So when the books were given to the Library of Congress, why couldn't eventually the books come back? Because he didn't want them back. He, oh. he, didn't, want to take, he didn't want to take up space in the castle with them. He said, if you want a book, go over to the Library of Congress and get a book. But what happened was, you know, all the, the scientists working in the castle needed written materials. They needed stuff handy. So books began to be stacked in offices, stacked in hallways, filling up closets. And it was a mess. I mean, a total mess. And then in 1968, that's how long it took, almost 100 years later, in 1968, they finally created the Smithsonian Library and allocated space in every one of the museums for a library so that those things could be consolidated in one place. So, you know, Henry was, he, he, had, his, he had his very sharp focus of what he wanted. He wasn't always right, though. But I want to emphasize, you mentioned that the year, it's not, some of my listeners going to say, oh, he mentioned 1868. No, it's 1968. It was 100 years later before the libraries were formally organized. And they literally had books. I mean, they were in hallways and closets just stacked wherever they could. It was amazing, all this information just trashed around. Now it's located in one repository in each place and carefully maintained. 
We'll be right back with more information. But now a word from our sponsors and advertisers who make this radio show possible. You're listening to the Best of Times Radio Hour here on News Radio 710 Keel, proudly presented by A Bears, Sending Country F Report, your Dodge, Chrysler Ram, and Jeep dealer. Gary's got more of the best of times coming for you on 710 Keel. Now, back to the best of times with your host, Gary Coligas. Welcome back to our show, the best of times radio hour, probably presented by A-Bears, the country of Shreveport, your Dodge, Chrysler Ram, and Jeep dealer. Joining me on my show today is internationally known author, lecturer, and historian, Mr. Steve Barry, and he's discussing his new novel that just got released to the world. It's The Lost Order. And uh, Steve's been giving us a little insight about this particular novel, and I do suggest all the, to all my radio loyal radio listeners out there to make sure you pick up a copy for yourself, or it's going to be a great gift uh, to give one of your family and friends who's greatly interested in a historical uh, historical suspense novel. So, Steve, go, this this again book is fascinating. It has so many interwindings of the of the knights. The Knights of the uh, the Golden Order, um, and also the the uh, talking about the Smithsonian, and so you and your wife probably did a lot of traveling on this one, right? Well, it was interesting to travel on this one. It was, it was a very kind of different travel. We did go to Arkansas, and we you know did go. We've been there and seen all of that. All of the travel for this novel was pretty much to Washington D.C. and through the Smithsonian facility. Uh, we trudged through American history, natural history, uh, the castle. We went all up into the nooks and crannies and all the little hidden spots that are all in the novel. So our exploration this time was confined within the Smithsonian itself. And the reader's going to get to see all those, including the tunnel that runs under the National Mall. It runs from the Smithsonian Castle to the Natural History Museum. And it's designed to carry uh, heating and cooling ducts from between the buildings, but it forms a passageway that runs under the National Mall. It's still there. It was built in the uh, later, latter part of the 19th century. It still exists. And so I worked it into the book along with many of the other little secret spots. You know, you you see a lot of Smithsonian things in novels, but a lot of it's all kind of hokey and kind of made up and, and that kind of thing. You know, what we did here was the actual real thing. And that, and then that's fascinating. I mean, you got the inner workings, the hidden, the hidden tunnels, and the purpose, and and I mean, you describe them in, in the novel, but you also describe them in pretty good detail in your editor's notes, in your editor's notes as well. So I, I'm sure that was it, it. Took you several months to research all this particular data to blend it in into the novel, correct? Yeah, we made uh, a couple, uh, about three trips to DC and went through all of these facilities because we we. We got a, a pretty good run through them, and I wanted to make sure I got it all right and make sure it was accurate. So in in your book, I know all my listeners have read your books before. You have that central character of Cotton Malone. Uh, so it, it, he's related to this Cotton Adams, who was a knight of the Golden Circle? Yeah, in the previous novels, people have always asked Cotton, how'd you get your name? How'd yeah. you get your name? You know, he always says long story. <laughs> he never explains it. Well, Elizabeth told my wife Elizabeth told me I milked that about as far as I can. Every time you now explain it, so uh, it is a long story. It took a whole novel. So uh, Angus Cotton Adams is a is a ancestor of Cotton's who's based on a real life Confederate spy by the name of Thomas Hines. 
And I read about Thomas Hines' life and all of his exploits years ago, and I realized then that he would be perfect for how Cotton got his name. There's actually a true story associated with Hines that I incorporated as part of how Cotton got his name. And I, I won't tell it because I don't want to ruin it for the reader, but there, the story of how Cotton actually got his name is a real story from Thomas Hines. And it's a fascinating one. I will I will tell our listeners. That I, I read that two or three times. Wow, is that a very unique idea? <laughs> uh, so so you, it, it's blended in there. And but but you mentioned that uh, even even some of the information that you found uh, that you gave in the book was regarding a note that. Uh, that was left by Angus is actually a note written by this Captain Hines, right? Yes, it's a, when he escaped wow. from a he escaped from a Union prison. That's the exact note that Hines left behind. And I referenced in the writer's note in the back an excellent biography on Thomas Hines. If the reader wants to read some more about it uh, and and learn more about it. Uh, before we uh, close our segment here, I want you to emphasize the importance of the Smithsonian Libraries and how uh, listeners out there and people throughout the world can can definitely help the Smithsonian. Yeah, we we here's the thing: most people think that the federal government pays for the Smithsonian. They do. They pay eighty percent of the cost of running the Smithsonian. The other twenty percent has to be raised each year. Now, for the Smithsonian Libraries, that's about $3.5 million we have to raise every year. Our budget's around $17 million a year. Now, of that $3.5 million, about $2 million of it we can, we can fairly get from trusts and other places that make yearly contributions to it. It's that $1.5 million at the end that's the most difficult that has to be raised. And I've done a couple of History Matters events for the Smithsonian to raise the money. Uh, and and try to and, and try to help with that. We have an adopt a book program where a reader, where a person out there can adopt one of our rare books, and you get your name played in the front of it. It becomes your book. You can come visit it, and the money that you pay to adopt that book is used to preserve that book. I've adopted four myself. Uh, we have a, a whole bunch of programs where people can get excited and help support the Smithsonian Libraries. And if they want to know more about it, they can just Google Smithsonian Libraries. It'll take you right to the website. and It has everything about Adopt a Book, and everything is there. And you can learn more about, you know, this, this amazing repository of knowledge and how you can help keep it open and free to all. And Steve, as you pointed out to our listeners, that it's not just the 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 touchy the 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 exhibits; it's the the background information of all the learning, the books, the 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 text, the the reports, the manuscripts, the the paintings, the prints, researched out everything, right? That's critical. Yeah. That's critical. Yeah, you may. Well, there would be, uh, go ahead. Yeah, there would there wouldn't be any exhibits unless we had. The information to back it up, and and is, doesn't the Smithsonian still a repository for many many other uh, institutions from throughout the world that want to have their their information stored at the Smithsonian? If, if they want, we'll take we take information from anybody and everywhere. We throw nothing away. We have we have in the libraries alone over two million objects. Of wow! Status and we have a lot, and it grows every day. And we we keep. We keep everything. That's the whole point is we have 
We have information. We are a repository for information. And that's what the purpose of it when it was first started, right? Yes, the increase and diffusion of knowledge. And uh, I think his legacy is continuing on to the nth degree and, and, you know, in the D.C. area. And it's not just helping the United States, but it's helping all over countries all over the world. Right? Yes, we are, we, we are worldwide and we have we, we assist worldwide every day. And it, it's amazing what the Smithsonian has become. It's synonymous with uh, cool, exciting things. Oh, I know you're you're a great proponent. I congratulate you for serving on that particular board as well. But, but we have a couple of minutes more, and I had one listener that wanted to say, how did Steve Berry know about uh, the North Viet, the North Korean um, brother, dictator's brother? <laughs> yeah, that's that's a character that I created in the Patriot. The Patriot threat. threat. Yeah. yeah, he's the antagonist in that novel, which I wrote, by the way. Uh, four years ago. Right. So, what happened to, uh, you know, the North Korean, the current North Korean leader's brother that recently, when he was assassinated, you know, that parallels what happened to the Patriot threat. Exactly. Almost exactly, Almost exactly what I. <laughs> yeah, because I have a female in there as well, and the whole thing is quite interesting because I based my antagonist in that novel totally on this guy. And it's just was one of those things that recently, you know, they actually finally acted on him and killed him. I always wondered why his brother kept him alive as long as he did, because he was always a threat to him. And it was just kind of interesting how what I wrote in the novel became true a few years later. Yes, it w- it was coincidental, you might say. And also, you brought up the fact I had one person said he didn't go to Disney. It was at Disney World in Japan, right? Is he that- tried. He-, he actually tried. Yes, he did. He he took his one of his children and tried to sneak into Japan. Got caught. Yeah. Embarrassed his father, and his father disowned. Him. Right. Otherwise, he would have been head of North Korea. And you you mentioned that in the Patriots threat and uh, yeah that's all I, I based my antagonist one hundred percent on this guy uh, all the way and because I found him a fascinating character and you know I, what's he going to do he wasn't going to you know, sue me what's he going to do <laughs> you know? so, you but know, I, I, but I have had several of my uh, loyal listeners who have um, have read this book uh, comment to me and says God, God Gary you going to get him on the show you need to ask him how did he come up with that so I said hey he has a crystal ball he comes up with things you never know that by that and I'm telling you Steve my prediction is this book will make an increase in treasure hunters throughout Arkansas and maybe Northwest Louisiana but in other parts of the other parts of the United States they have nothing else to do they might as well go start the treasure hunting list again, right? Yeah, it'd be pretty cool if they could actually find the, the great cash itself, where the where all the, where the where the, the where everything. Like the, I call it the vault in the novel, but if they could actually find that. It'd be quite amazing. I don't think they'll tell anybody, right? Well, they'll, they'll get to, they get to keep it. I mean, it'll be there. So if they if they they need to get it all out of the ground before they tell anybody, I'll tell you that. And there may be a lot of documents in there that might be having some interesting light, right? You you uh, and, and you mentioned doubt the, that they would have survived, uh, uh, you know, in the ground like that. But you know, we never know. All of the documents relative to the night disappeared. No one's seen their. Uh, no one. No one knows where they are. Most likely were destroyed, but you never know. 
Well, thank you, Steve, again for appearing on the Best of Times Radio Hour. You, your insight's great. I do encourage everyone to read The Lost Order, and you can uh, go to his website at Steve Berry. That's Steve B E R R Y dot O R G. You can order the book from that website, or you can, of course, go to our website, thebestoftimesnews.com. It is on our website. And uh, best wishes to you and Elizabeth, and looking forward to talking to you next year. Do you have any snippets you can give us about what you're working on now? It's already done. It will deal with something that's going to be very hot next year. Very uh, Next year is the 50th anniversary of the death of Martin Luther King. So the book is going to deal with uh, the Martin Luther King assassination. Wow. Can't wait, to, can't wait to read that novel. Well, again, it's thank a, you. A, Go ahead. No, it's an interesting story. I think you'll like it. Well, I know I will. I've liked all your other... And somebody asked me, I, I haven't had a chance to count them. How many different novels have you written? Uh, this is this year is the 16th, so 16 now. So wow, congratulations! 16 is a, a, a lot of, and it's been in many languages. I had p- people uh, in Europe. Uh, I was over in France, and, and I, I was I took one of your books over there, by the way. And somebody recognized your on the cover. <laughs> I was walking down the street with the book, and I thought that was pretty coincidental. Uh, and uh, he was from France, was Paris, France. So, again, thank you, Steve, for joining us today here on the Best of Times Radio. Our best wishes to you and Elizabeth. All right. Thank you, Gary. Take care. We'll be right back with more information, but now a word from our sponsors and advertisers who make this radio show possible. You're listening to the Best of Times Radio Hour here on News Radio 710 Keel, proudly presented by A Bears, Sunny Country of Shreveport, your Dodge, Chrysler Ram, and Jeep dealer. Gary's got more of the Best of Times coming for you on 710 Keel. Back to the best of times with your host, Gary Kaligas. Welcome back to our show, the best of times radio hour here on News Radio 710 Keel. Thank you for listening to our show today. Join us next Saturday for another show that can benefit you or your loved ones. Please do thank our sponsors and advertisers who support our radio show and our magazine, The Best of Times. Don't forget to pick up your personal copy of The Best of Times at one of our 522 distribution locations. May God bless you and your family. God bless America. Have a great day and a great weekend. Thank you again for listening to our show. I'm Gary Kaligas, wishing you and yours the best of times both today and every day. Have a great day. You've been listening to the best of times on 710 Keel. Join us again next Saturday at 9 for the best of times. This is News Radio 710 Keel. K-E-E-L. Shreveport Bossier.